5: Welcome to Stuff
2: Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And welcome to part two of our Stargazing Women series about women in astronomy. And before we dive in, Caroline, I had a moment of astronomical synchronicity Happened in the car yesterday. Can I tell you about it? Because I got so excited because we were doing this podcast mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. So I'm listening to NPR per
4: use, per use.
0: And an announcement comes on talking about this comet called the Lovejoy comet that was passing over Atlanta, where Caroline and I are located. And I got really excited, not so much about the comet, <laughs> but because they interviewed a woman astronomer at our local Fernbank Observatory, ab- ab- all about this comet. And I was like, oh, this is a woman. She, this, <laughs> the, the podcast has come alive. It's a woman astronomer. <laughs> they exist. And she's
4: so excited about the stars. And here this whole time, I thought when the podcast came alive, it would be on ice. No, <laughs> not that's later. That's, oh, okay, that's uh that's one,
0: that's a project still in the works. <laughs> you and I have to get our our ice dancing. Sminty on ice. Yes, yes. Um, but I, yeah, I, I really nerded out in my car by
4: myself. There was no one to tell, so I just kind of. Yelped aloud. Yes, I was doing the same thing, but in my bathroom, getting ready to come to work. You heard the same announcement? I did. Oh, it's like it's as if we both listen to NPR. Yeah, it's
0: like we're both total nerds. Who knew? Um, when we left off in part one, we had gotten up into this factory system of astronomical observations. Women like Mariah Mitchell were starting to make inroads in terms of women in astronomy. You had uh, observatories set up at some women's colleges like Vassar, uh, but we were still it, it kind of pushed off to the side in a lot of ways.
4: Right. A lot of the women who were in astronomy in this era were definitely in the more clerical positions. And it wasn't because, hey, women are so smart. We love women. Put them in the clerical positions so they'll, they'll make amazing discoveries. Uh, the popular opinion was more like, we don't trust women to use their delicate lady brains. So let's put them in these clerical positions so they can pour over astrophotography data for hours on end. But the great thing is that even in these positions of, you know, supposed lesser power or lesser ability, they still managed to make some pretty amazing discoveries. And one of the biggest names in this whole factory-like setting of astronomy was Charles Pickering at the Harvard Observatory. So thanks to photographic
0: technology that was developing at the time, they were able to see more than ever before, but they needed to analyze all of these snapshots of
4: the guy that they
0: were getting. And it was very, very tedious work.
4: Yeah. And so Pickering had this guy as his assistant. And I don't know what the guy was doing. I don't know if he's falling asleep on the job, but either way, he's just letting Pickering down. And so Pickering was like, screw you, dude. You're not doing your job. I need somebody who's actually competent. And who did he consider to be competent around him? Well, that would be Wilhelmina Fleming, his maid. She's a single mother who Pickering brings on as his astronomy assistant because he's like, I know you, you hang out around me a lot and you're pretty competent. And so he passes along all of this
0: astrophotography analysis to Fleming, who ends up working at Harvard for more than 34 years, thanks to her skill at computing and copying. And she was the first woman to have a formal appointment there. Yeah. And during Pickering's time at Harvard, which lasted from 1877 to 1919, more than 80 women worked for him in mostly clerical capacities, doing computing and cataloging work. And they are referred to often as Pickering's women or... Alternatively, as Pickering's harem. Yeah, that's just great.
4: That's so great. Yeah, lots of lots of respect. Yeah, so much respect. But they were doing important work, despite the stupid name. They provided data that ended up forming the empirical basis for larger astronomical theory. But, of course, they were earning just 25 to 50 cents an hour, half of what a man would have been paid in the same position.
0: Yeah, and the Harvard Observatory is an interesting case study in how women contributed more data, particularly on variable stars, which are stars that change in brightness than their counterparts did. And it's largely due to this system that they had set up of all working together and sharing information and collaborating. And I've got to give a shout out now to Cosmos, the the show hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, which in the episode Sisters of the Sun, he takes the time to focus on the women in the Harvard Observatory who were laying the foundation for all of these incredible astronomical discoveries to come. Because without Pickering's women
4: we would know so much less about the stars in the a- sky. Absolutely. And Hofflet, Hofflett uh, from Yale University, who herself was a giant name in astronomy, wrote about variable stars in particular. And she talked about how from the 1880s, so Pickering's time, to the 1950s, women contributed way more data on these types of stars, variable stars are the kind that change brightness, than their male counterparts did. By 1959, in fact, women, including Wilhelmina Fleming, had discovered more than 75% of the more than 14,000 named variable stars then known. But we should back up first for a minute.
0: Yeah, we need to hop back to 1896 when a woman named Annie Jump Cannon transfers from Wellesley, where she helped conduct experiments on x-rays, to Radcliffe College in order to make her way into Pickering's Observatory. And what she did was simplify Pickering and Wilhelmina Fleming's system for classifying stars. And the work that Cannon does, the simplest way to explain it is that she, I mean, she almost set up like a Dewey Decimal system for the stars. She figured out how to categorize and label All of them. I mean, then
4: this is still a system that we use today. Right. And in 1922, this this definitely did not go unnoticed because in 1922, the International Astronomical Union ended up adopting her method of categorizing stars, which was based on their temperatures as the official classification system. So that's no small potatoes. And she received a whole lot of accolades going forward. In 1925, she was the first woman to be awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Oxford. And in 1933, after becoming the first woman officer in the American Astronomical Society, she established their Annie Jump Cannon Award, which is given to a North American female astronomer for distinguished contributions to the field. And we will have more to say about that award and how it changed later in the 1970s. But in 1938, Harvard appointed Canon, the William C. Bond Professor of Astronomy. So she is definitely one of the huge names in astronomy, specifically as someone who came out of Fleming's, uh, you know, group of women. I won't say harem. I just said harem.
0: Yeah, we need a better name rather than I don't even like Pickering's women. Does no. that even sound so possessive? So maybe we should rename them. I mean, Sisters of the Sun which is what Neil deGrasse Tyson called them, or whoever wrote his scripts, I thought was pretty good. And at the end of that episode, side note, Caroline, he's uh, drinking some wine with this older woman. I think he's in Italy or something. And he looks into the camera and raises his wine glass and toasts the Sisters of the Sun. And As as well he should. It's an amazing moment. But anyway, there's another woman that we need to mention. He was working alongside Annie Jump Cannon at this time. Uh, She actually... Joined uh, the Harvard Observatory in 1895, just a year prior to Annie Jump Cannon. And this is Henrietta Swan Leavitt. And what she did was figure out a way to measure the distance of stars really, really, really far away. It's something called the Cepheid Variable Period Luminosity Relationship. Of course. Yeah, I mean, which, (laughs) (laughs) obviously. Um, So, it's often referred to as the distance key, and this made possible all subsequent discoveries in astronomy of the 19th and 20th centuries, because they could finally get uh, dimensions to these farther away kinds of stars. So, not only do we have Cannon, who is Uh, labeling and categorizing all these stars. Now we have Levitt coming along to offer uh, some distance in there. And then when we get to 1925, we have Cecilia Payne, who then offers us this breakthrough information on the composition of the stars.
4: Right. And so what's interesting about Cecilia Payne is that, you know, she makes these amazing contributions, but there's a little bit of self-doubt in there. But first, let's establish why she's so awesome. Cecilia Payne is the first person to receive a Ph.D. from the Harvard Astronomy Department. And her thesis rocks the astrophysics world because she demonstrated that the sun was made almost exclusively from hydrogen and helium. Thus, its makeup was way different from the Earth's because leading up to this, scientists had thought that the Earth and the sun were basically composed similarly. But, you know, Kristen, you and I have talked about the imposter syndrome on the podcast before, to protect her reputation, Payne inserted a clause at the beginning of her thesis, stating that the results were, quote, probably not real. Just in case somebody laughed at her or said, this is ridiculous. She was like, oh, hey, I'm just going to put this here about what the sun is made of. But who knows? Maybe it's wrong. Well, I mean, she had already gotten flack from professors. I, I forget.
0: there was a specific guy at Harvard who had looked at her work And was really skeptical just because it was such a revolutionary idea. And imagine, too, that you're Cecilia Payne. And she came to the United States from Britain specifically because in Britain at the time, she couldn't go to college. She couldn't study alongside men. So, I mean, imposter syndrome on top of imposter syndrome for this woman who is studying theoretical and anatomical physics and blowing people's minds at a time when in the place that she's from, she
4: wasn't even allowed to go to school. Right. And her work ended up laying the foundation for our understanding of stars' compositions in general, not just the sun. And a Guardian article referred to it as the astrophysical equivalent of Darwin's origin of the species. So clearly laying some amazing groundwork for astronomy. So did a similar pattern of allowing more women into the fold happen during World War II
0: for women in astronomy as well?
4: Yeah, I mean, it definitely did. World War Two shook up society, as we know and have talked about many times on the podcast. Stem jobs were definitely no exception, because as we've seen from the last episode on astronomy and as we're talking about now, educational and professional opportunities were definitely expanding as more women's colleges were opening their doors to researchers and helping women get a foot in the door. Um not to mention the the social change as far as ideas about women not being physically or mentally fit to work outside the home or in scientific fields, were starting to fall away. And the notion about married women needing to stay home was also falling away. Of course, it's not totally, though, because that still kind of is around. But during the war, during World War II, there were fewer male grad students around, and so there was a relative increase in the number of female astronomers. And in 1945 in particular... In the United States, the National Science Foundation estimated that bachelor's degrees in physics reached a high of 23 percent, up from 14 percent in 1940. And the reason that we're pointing out physics in, in particular is that most astronomy grad students do have a physics degree.
0: And thanks to the technological research happening during World War One that's fueled by military pursuits, Astronomy is still an evolving field because you get the emergence of radio astronomy, which happened during the war, thanks to radar research. And so you have this combinations of new fields and branches within the field and also fewer men. So in Australia, Ruby Payne Scott became one of the first radio astronomers and was the first woman radio astronomer. And she was also an author on numerous early papers and became a scientific leader until
4: after the war. Right. Yeah, when the men start coming home from the war and women's overall numbers, not only in in the workforce in general, but also in astronomy and other STEM fields, when men's numbers increase and women's numbers decrease after the war, Payne Scott still managed to make huge contributions to the understanding of solar radio bursts, and the development of radio astronomical techniques and instruments. So that's great, right? Like, she manages to hold on when so many women were shoved out of the workforce when men came home. It didn't last long, because even though I literally just mentioned a second ago that the idea that women needed to stay home and be wives and mothers, and, oh, you better not hire wives and mothers, because women in the workforce are obviously, like, aberrations of the norm, Ruby Payne Scott was doing great. She had to hide the fact, though, that she was getting married. And when she got pregnant, she ended up having to resign from the field. And, of course, this follows the fact that she was also suspected of being a commie and was definitely an outspoken feminist about getting other women involved in astronomy and STEM fields. And so people were like, wait, so you're a a commie, feminist, outspoken, scientific lady, and now you're getting married and having a child? Get out of here. The world was not
0: ready for Ruby Payne, Scott. No. It sounds like. Well, and when it comes, though, to that whole marriage factor, this is a pattern that you're going to see throughout the next few decades in terms of um, observatories and research facilities having these anti-nepotism rules, which essentially meant that if your husband is working in a lab, then his your the wife is not going to be allowed to work in the lab, because that's what they considered nepotism, which actually hampered a lot of women's careers because, I mean, it makes sense that, You know, you're an astrophysicist. You meet another astrophysicist. (laughs) You fall in love. You know, (laughs) you get stars in your eyes. Literally, the stars align. (laughs) So, they're you know that that, that's that's sort of a a downer of a rule for a number of these astronom astronomers working. But of course, when it comes to this anti nepotism rule, it's the wife who has to go home not the husband typically which leads us to second wave
4: feminism.
0: <laughs> yes. According to the National Science Foundation though, uh from 1950 to 1970, the proportion of women earning bachelor's degrees in physics stayed still at about 4 to 6%. So not a ton of
4: women studying physics. Yeah, but when you move into the 60s and 70s, the numbers start to increase. In 1972, for instance, if we're talking about bachelor's degrees, women earned 17% of bachelor's degrees in astronomy. And during that period of the 60s to the 70s, while the number of female PhDs rose, the percentage of women in the American Astronomical Society, for instance, dropped to just 8% by 1973. So the numbers are sort of... All over the place and during this time, the job prospects are still terrible for married women. There was a lot of fear about women taking time off to have children. Oh, yeah. The workplace issues for
0: working moms in astronomy echo so many of the workplace issues we still hear about today for working moms. That whole sneering at part-time work of trying to balance family and this really intensive research, because understandably, astronomy is like, say, being a lawyer is a field that requires and you're expected to pour so many hours. It's not a 40 hour a week kind of gig. And with that, there are still echoes of the Pickering's women or Pickering's harem era going on, um, which leads us to the story of Jocelyn Bell. Burnell, who discovered pulsars, (laughs) FYI, pulsars are remnants of massive stars after they've exploded. And I think that before Burnell figured that out, we thought that they were aliens. Really? Yeah.
4: The little green men. Really? Yep. I had no idea. I'm learning so much from you, Kristen. (laughs)
0: Well, I'm, I just learned a lot from Neil deGrasse Tyson, so.
4: <laughs> well, there we go. Um, and this is coming from National Geographic. Um, uh, but in 1967, Burnell, as you said, discovered pulsars while she was in grad school for radio astronomy. Hey, Ruby Payne Scott. Uh, at Cambridge in England. And Burnell was just, you know, no big deal studying three miles worth of paper from a radio telescope that she helped build when she made this discovery and hooray, it resulted in a nobel prize that's wonderful right yeah but the nobel prize went to her male supervisor And another male astronomer. Yeah, so Brunel, the way that she explains it is, the picture people had at the time of the way that science was done was that there was a senior man, and it was always a man, who had under him a whole load of minions, junior staff, who weren't expected to think, who were only expected to do as he said. So how did, I mean, that sounds exactly like Pickering's Women.
0: Yeah, and I heard an interview with Burrell on the BBC from not that long ago, and they played a clip of the male supervisor who had received the Nobel Prize, and he stood by it. He essentially said, well, you just have to understand that there's a difference between the captain of the ship and the crew. So when, you know, if there's a successful voyage, who's really to thank? And so, I, I mean, this guy clearly fancies himself a captain of a, of a pleasure cruise. You think he wears like a jaunty captain's hat? Yes, I do. And Belle Burnell, when she was asked by the BBC reporter for her response to that, she was essentially like, that's where he stands. If I got, if I continue to get mad about this every day, then I would not be able to do any work. But she made so clear how challenging it was constantly Mm -hmm. to be a woman in this field, even before the whole balancing of family and career. When she first walked into like an auditorium sized classroom in college, all of the men in the room started stamping their feet and whooping because that was just tradition. Because she was, you know, the only woman in the room. And so, of course, she was going to get heckled. And so that's what was happening when she was in graduate school. Yeah. And then she gets the Nobel Prize just snatched out from under her and... And National Geographic points out that even though, yes, this woman discovered pulsars, it should have been given a Nobel Prize, et cetera, many of the positions she was offered in her career were focused on teaching or administrative and management duties because that was still seen as more women-appropriate work.
4: Yeah, and she does point out that it was extremely hard combining family and career, which is something that women today obviously still struggle with, Times have not changed that much. But as of 2013, Burnell was a visiting astronomy professor at the University of Oxford. She recently chaired a working group for the Royal Society of Edinburgh. And she was tasked with finding a strategy to boost the number of women in STEM fields in Scotland. And there was one more thing, Caroline,
0: that jumped out to me in that BBC interview. We mentioned uh, the, the imposter syndrome and Cecilia Payne's work in the 1920s. Belle Burnell specifically called out the imposter syndrome as well. And she even asked the report, she was like, have you ever heard of this thing called the imposter syndrome? Yeah, it's essentially been something I've had to fight every single day of my career. That sense of, oh, well, no, I'm going to be found out at some point because I, I surely I don't belong here. But obviously those feelings of not belonging have nothing to do with her actual intelligence and prowess but the environment, the hostile environment she's been working in now for decades
4: and then as we move through the 1970s there uh, are a couple more developments in the field of astronomy that had a lot to do with women Um, In 1971, astrophysicist Margaret Burbage declined the Cannon Prize. Now, we mentioned the Cannon Prize earlier. It was supposed to go to, you know, incredible uh, female astronomers who've made great strides and made great contributions to the field. But Burbage said that the prize was discriminatory because it was available only to women. And the direct result of this was that the American Astronomical Society established basically a lady committee that recommended the prize become a research award for which women in early stages of their careers could apply. The reasoning being that women face numerous disadvantages early on in their education, uh, in their grad school career and getting a career going off the ground. And so, yeah, basically the reasoning was like, if we give it to women who are still in school, then that's not as Discriminatory, And so in 1972, they recommended that the AAS set up a group to review the status of women in astronomy. And in 1973, that new committee, the working group on the status of women in astronomy, released a report where they found that the percent of women in the AAS was the lowest ever in its history that women were underrepresented as officers and other people in this group, and that the United States was seventh in the percentage of female members of the International Astronomy Union. So basically, basically, this group is like, hey, women aren't in enough places (laughs) (laughs) in astronomy. Yeah. And as a result of all this
0: information that they're finding out, the data that they're collecting about women in the field, In 1979, that working group on women finally became a standing committee. And as a result of their work, in 1992, members developed what was called the Baltimore Charter, which had the goal of promoting a culture that would help both men and women realize their full potential in STEM careers. So the question then is, what does that full potential look like for astronomers today? We'll talk about that when we come right back from a quick break.
3: Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.
0: And now, back to the show. So, Caroline, what does being an astronomer Entailed today? I mean, is it, have we learned
4: everything there is to know about the stars? I mean, certainly not. You know, as we mentioned in our first episode on women in astronomy, some major discoveries were still being made in the 1990s, back when that women's committee was developing charters to encourage people in the field of astronomy. We still have so much to discover, but the field of astronomy itself is relatively small. And this is coming from 2012 numbers from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. There are only about 6,000 professional astronomers in North America, and it's super competitive because there are 150 North American job openings per year, and there are 125 PhD grads per year. So a lot of people vying for not that many jobs.
0: Yeah, and if you do get a job, though, uh, it pays pretty well to be an astronomer. In 2012, the median pay was $106,000 per year, or $51 per hour, if you're... You know, wanting to keep track of it that way. And the kinds of things, obviously, that you'd be studying include planets, stars, galaxies, and other celestial bodies. And there's all sorts of equipment that's involved as well, including ground-based equipment like radio and optical telescopes, as well as space-based equipment, such as the Hubble Space Telescope, which a lot of listeners have probably heard of. And you generally are either making observations or working on theory. So what are... Some of the modern observations that astronomers today have been making, Caroline,
4: Well, it's not so much that astronomers are looking through a telescope and sweeping the sky, as the ladies in our first episode did very often, but rather use computers and super-sophisticated telescopes that can detect radiation other than visible light, such as gamma rays or radio waves. And rather than making direct observations by sweeping the sky with a telescope, theoretical astronomers typically use data from observational astronomers to develop theories.
0: And we should also mention, too, that telescope technology has also spawned numerous medical applications. So there are day-to-day repercussions of the work that astronomers are doing. And typically they're employed at colleges, universities, and professional schools. Um, They're also involved in research and development, in the physical engineering and life sciences. And, of course, if you are an aspiring astronomer or astrophysicist, you can get a job with the federal government. You can work for NASA or the Department of Defense. <laughs> right.
4: Only, uh, 19% of astronomers and astrophysicists end up in those cushy, uh, high paying federal government jobs like at NASA. Most of them are at colleges and stuff. But, alright. So now that we've laid out what astronomers are doing today, that they're using big supercomputers, what does it look like out there for ladies today in astronomy?
0: Well, astronomy is usually highlighted as a STEM field that is friendlier to women, which is, seems ironic considering, you know, the, the Jocelyn Bell-Burnell stories and the other ones that we've shared. Um, but by and large, it does tend to attract more women than other STEM fields, but it still suffers similar leaky pipeline issues as we see all over STEM. So when it comes to the pipeline issue, it's usually the same old tale of women starting out. They're interested in physics. They're taking the courses and their bachelor's degrees, but they don't make it to the PhD level. And then if they make it to the PhD level, there's a drop off after that as well.
4: Right. And a lot of these numbers, though, can be deceiving. It really depends on what phase of a woman's science career or astronomy career you're looking at because we mentioned that uh, physics and physics bachelor's degrees were important to talk about because typically that can lead then to astronomy. Um And so when you look back at middle school and high school, girls make up half of physics students, but that number definitely drops way off in high school and definitely in higher education. But you also have to keep in mind that most high school students or a lot of high school students have to take Things like physics or chemistry or whatever. And so it's just important to keep in mind that while, yes, there is a pipeline issue, sometimes you just have to remember that certain things are inflating numbers in parts of the pipeline. So if we look at higher
0: education, uh, and this number is coming from 2003, so it's a little bit dated, but women earn 22% of physics bachelor's degrees and 46% of astronomy bachelor's degrees. So you see there... 46% 46% of astronomy bachelor's degrees. So, hey, we're earning almost half of them. Well done. Also, I I can do simple math. Um, now, <laughs> now, when it comes to the faculty in standalone astronomy departments, women make up only 14% of faculty members versus 10%. In physics departments. So you might there, too, have issues going on with the whole visibility factor. You don't see many women mm-hmm. at the front of the classroom in physics and astronomy.
4: Yeah, but there is good news and bad news when it comes to women teaching in higher education. Uh, women are being hired into the professorial ranks at better than their availability rate. But the proportion of women in temporary faculty positions and like assistant professor positions is even higher. So there's still a little bit of echoes of Pickering's women where, while it's great that they're getting into this field, many of them are still filling the the lower positions. But MIT's Claude Canizares found that women were tenured, actually, at a slightly higher rate than men. And that the clock stopping, so to speak, to have or adopt a child actually did not affect women's likelihood of being tenured. That is so surprising. That is so surprising. Because whenever
0: it comes to women in academia in general, it's usually that whole tenure track of having to not only teach, but also do the research and get published and just all of the hours involved in that, that it requires to get tenured is often cited as the, you know, primary reason for that, that drop off in women. Um, but when it comes to uh, some gender and parity in physics and astronomy, the U.S. is not alone in this. Most countries, in fact, award less than a quarter of their first level university physics degrees to women and most grant less than 20 percent of their physics PhDs to women. But uh, there is a PhD that we need to mention. astrophysicists. Meg Uri, who has been one leading the charge in terms of calling for more recognition of issues affecting women in STEM. How do we close the leaky pipeline? Obviously, uh, providing visibility as a female astrophysicist. Um, She has echoed what Kanazari said in terms of there's a lot of research showing that Pipeline and underrepresentation issues aren't necessarily about complications from having a family or even conscious discriminatory actions or obviously anything to do with innate ability. So Yuri has pondered and written about a lot what is the issue? What's going on? And something that comes up a lot
4: for her is unconscious gender bias. Yeah. And she points to several studies that have shown that work associated with a woman's name isn't as highly rated as that associated with a man's name. She also mentions that in letters of recommendation, women are more likely to get words like reliable, while a man will be deemed brilliant. And also the fact that women and men don't necessarily respond to mentors, Coaching style is the same. She also points out that the way that we're socialized could have a lot to do with it. As, I mean, as women, not just as, like, people or astronomers or whoever. She instructs women to own your ambition. She writes, It really scares me the way young women dial back their aspirations because they're anticipating that they'll have to make compromises. Believe me, the young men aren't doing that. Okay, so when's the last time we heard that, Kristen? From Sheryl Sandberg in Lean In. Yeah, it sounds very Lean In-y. <laughs> she talks a lot about women needing to work at something
0: they love And something that they can publish high impact papers about so they can really make their mark in that community because it is a small and prestigious community and also develop connections with other women in science. There is a lot of networking going on intentionally among women in these STEM fields. And it's not just an issue, though, when it comes to representation of people in STEM. It's not just women there's also a lot of attention that's been paid recently to uh, ethnic minorities as well as LGBT representation. Um, because, for instance, from 1976 to 2003, only 35 African-American women and 57 Hispanic women earned physics PhDs from 1976 to 2003. And just seven African-American women and 12 Hispanic women earned astronomy PhDs. And honestly, all of the women that we have highlighted up to this point, Caroline, Mm -hmm. have been white. We should acknowledge that.
4: Right. And speaking about boosting the representation of many types of people in astronomy and having a greater amount of diversity, Vanderbilt University is hosting the inaugural Inclusive Astronomy Meeting in June of this year, 2015. And their mission statement says that Inclusive Astronomy 2015 will serve as a welcoming, strategic venue to advocate and provide resources for the inclusion in the astronomy community of people of color, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, or questioning people, people with disabilities, women, and anyone who holds more than one of these identities.
0: Yeah. And on top
4: of that, we should mention
0: that the American Astronomical Society has a working group on LGBTIQ equality to raise awareness and fight discrimination. So it does sound like there is progress being made in terms of representation, of paying attention to these issues, of trying to level the playing field mm-hmm. um, so that w- <laughs> Bickering's women can finally be a past era of astronomy. And I feel like a good place for us to close out this conversation, Caroline, would be a couple of living lady astronomers out there. Because there is one thing... That jumped out to me in thinking about astronomy and astrophysics today. When it comes to women, there are no Lady Carl Sagan's or Neil deGrasse Tyson's, and yet there are these women doing incredible work. I think that we need a woman astronomer rock star at the the level of Neil deGrasse Tyson, whom Mm -hmm. I love. Nothing against (laughs) Neil deGrasse Tyson at all, Um, but who are who are a couple of potential. Neil deGrasse Tyson's.
4: I mean, we've mentioned Meg Yuri already and yeah. all of the incredible work she's doing in terms of writing about uh, basically diversity issues in astronomy. But one big name we should mention, too, is Sydney C. Wolf. She was the first woman to serve as director of a major U.S. observatory and to have led the construction of six premier telescopes. She served as the director of the National Optical Astronomy Observatory in Arizona from 1987 to 2000, and she helped develop world-class observatory facilities in both Arizona and Chile. And so she served as also the American Astronomical Society president in 1991. Not bad for a group that felt it needed an entire committee to examine women's role in the organization. She's the founding editor also of the Astronomy Education Review, and her research on stellar atmospheres and the evolution, formation and composition of stars is internationally recognized.
0: And Caroline, since we started off the podcast talking about comets, a good place to bring the podcast full circle is Caroline Shoemaker for a couple of reasons. First of all, Shoemaker holds the record for the most comet discoveries. Get ready for this folks. She's found more than 800 asteroids. And 32 comets. And with her husband Gene, she received the Rittenhouse Medal in 1988, and the Scientist of the Year Award in 1995. And NASA awarded her the Exceptional Scientific Achievement Medal in 1996. And her story is fascinating because she didn't get into astronomy on a professional level until she was 51. First, she was a stay-at-home mom, and she always was interested in her husband Gene's work, and he often looped her into field observations and work that he was doing, but it wasn't until after that phase of being a full-time mom that she then transitioned into being this incredible astronomer, and she worked with her husband Gene until he was killed in a tragic car accident at a California observatory. So... No matter what age you are, if you were listening to this podcast, it's not too late if you're interested in astronomy. And I love this story, though, because I mean, it really, to me, sums up so much of women's history with astronomy because she's kind of. It goes back to the buttons and breakfast issue that we were talking about Mm -hmm. in part one of that concern of, well, if women get too involved in astronomy, then who's going to take care of the home? Well, Carolyn Shoemaker was like, I'll just do all of it.
4: Yeah. Well, yeah. And it also perfectly illustrates our, our themes. One of our themes from the first episode, which is that so many women throughout history have gotten into STEM fields, STEM jobs, STEM hobbies and pastimes, thanks to... The influence of a father or a husband or whatever. And so here you have a very modern woman, Carolyn Shoemaker, who is getting not only involved in astronomy, but completely pursuing it passionately as a career and making all these discoveries in the wake of her husband's death.
5: This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History class. a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
1: You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global...
0: I hope that there are some astronomers listening. We would love to hear from you or people who are just amateur stargazers or any folks involved in STEM. We want to know your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Oh, and if you have any suggestions for the lady equivalents of Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan, (laughs) really curious to know who your nominations would be for lady astronomer rock stars momstuffathowstuffworks.com again is our email address you can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now
4: all right i have a letter here from steven following up on our history of underpants episode uh, Steven says, I found it interesting how you mentioned that women's equivalent for men's clothing were not only made more feminine through frills or lace, but also through terms like lady-alls instead of overalls. As a guy, I've noticed the same phenomenon with men's equivalent for what are considered traditionally feminine things, such as guy-liner for eyeliner, man-purse for any bag a guy carries, and manscaping for his hair trimming choices. I carry a messenger bag as my everyday carry-all, and I prefer to just call it my bag or confront the occasional jokes directly and just call it my purse it's amazing just how uncomfortable people can get when you start stepping over the perceived gender lines and how far they'll push to keep everyone pinned into gender roles and expectations me i'll keep proudly flaunting my purse and wearing eyeliner wherever i go thanks for all the work you put into the podcast and thank you steven for writing in
0: well i've got a letter here from olga also about our uh, history of women's underwear episode And the subject line is women's underwear in 19th century Serbia. So here we go. Olga writes, I'm a cultural anthropology student in Serbia, and we had a Serbian material culture class in which we discussed clothing, among other things. 19th century peasant clothing in the Balkan region is influenced by both Western fashion, which came through the city folk and Eastern fashion, because most of these countries were part of the Ottoman Empire for a long time, which I find endlessly fascinating. As a result of this kind of cultural collision, there were some mixed feelings about the transition to underwear. Turkish women traditionally wore pants under skirts that were split in the front, and vests instead of constricting corsets. Serbian peasants also wore vests instead of corsets, no underwear of any kind except sometimes a chemise, and sheer white skirts that fell just below the knee. And because that didn't cover anything at all, most parts of the country covered it with another article of clothing, mostly aprons. And peasant clothing was highly symbolic, so if you wove a certain color through your woolen apron while you were making it, you could express all sorts of personal feelings and social statuses, like a certain color might indicate marital status. So anyway, when the city women started wearing underwear, the country folk saw it as something that only rich women, women in sports, and prostitutes might wear, And also, since poor country women didn't get to rest while they got their period, they would have to work through it. Meanwhile, I'm down for the count for at least two days when Aunt Flo comes along. And don't even get me started on dealing with pregnancy in the 19th century. Anyway, I love listening to you people talk about cool things. Keep doing what you're doing. So thanks, Olga, for that insight into 19th century Serbian underwear. And now I kind of wish that I had a symbolic woolen apron. (laughs) Yeah. So if you have any costume history or facts about astronomers or anything else you'd like to share with us, MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with all of our sources, so you can follow along, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80.